On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Tom Hicks about theonomy, Baptist, Reconstructionism, and more. So we cover topics like what is theonomy? Is this the logical conclusion of original Westminster federalism? Can a Baptist or any Baptist be a theonomist? Does the Second London Baptist Confession allow for theonomy? And if it doesn't, should Baptists reject it? And is it something that could potentially serve as a threat to churches, particularly Baptist ones, and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And in thinking, we don't want to just think in the abstract, we want to think well. So we've endeavored to create an intellectual culture or to cultivate one that is full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and especially cheerful confessionalism. And today for this episode, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm excited, uh, partly because me and Brandon really haven't recorded any episodes for like, what feels like six months. So this is like, if you wanted to think in, I guess, ways of like, what is it? They do the seasons, like there's a season one, season two, season three, season four. I imagine since we started, we recorded a bunch in our season one, and then we got in this new groove where we record in bunches. So this is our third, I guess, bunch of recording. So I am so excited to get back in the saddle to start recording some episodes. And what better way to start than with Dr. Tom Hicks on the topic of theonomy and Baptist theology. Are they compatible? What does it mean? Why is there such a resurgence in desiring for this? I mean, what, what hotter topic could you get than this, right? Uh, I think probably <laughs> half our listeners think that's probably not a very hot topic, and the other half think it's super hot. <laughs> so before we get into that, uh, Tom, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Uh, you don't have to go super in-depth, but just a, a brief bio, and then give me a, a little bit why you got interested in this topic to think about it at all. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I am the senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Clinton, Louisiana, which is just north of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm married to Joy, and we have four children. And I received my uh, MDiv and PhD degrees from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where I majored in church history with an emphasis on Baptists, and I minored in systematic theology. Um, I also serve on the board of directors for Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm one of the hosts of the Modern Merriman podcast for CBTS's Man of God Network. So um, as far as theonomy and how I got interested in it, there just seemed to be a resurgence of it. And um, people started asking me, you know, my my area of study is the doctrine of justification and uh, the covenants. And I thought a lot about law and gospel. And, and so as this particularly began to reemerge, it seemed, kind of with strength almost all at once. Uh, even among Baptists, I kind of felt a burden to to dig and to study and to provide some kind of response to it. Um, you know, at least for those that I knew, I didn't know if it'd go further than that, but uh, I felt a pastoral responsibility to do that particularly. So so for those listening who who have no idea what theonomy is, so we, we, we joke about my grandma listening to this podcast a lot, and she's, she's probably not going to have any idea what theonomy is. So <laughs> for someone like my grandma, like what, what is it? I know there's, there's kind of maybe two different definitions. There's just, you know, 
oh, it just means God's law, but there's a much more specific definition of, of what people mean when they say theonomy. So help us understand what that means. Right. Well, you know, the, obviously, as you mentioned, the etymology, theos and namos, just mean God's law. But historically speaking, this term theonomy has a pedigree. And it, it means something if you if you read what you know what people in the past have used this term to to say what it means is the old covenant judicial laws, so the civil judicial case laws of the old covenant are the universal moral standard of civil law for all Gentile nations. So it holds that God gave the judicial law um, to the nation of Israel as a universal law of perfect justice. And so it's a blueprint um, and should be followed by all nations. This form of theonomy was uh, was first advocated by Greg Bonson, Rush Dooney, Gary North, and it took off and continued from those who started it up. So um, among theonomists today, though, I think I should also say there's a, there's a connection among theonomy Reconstruction and postmillennialism. If we didn't mention that, we'd be missing a big piece of this because they come, they come together. Um, and I want to define those. Uh, reconstruction is the idea that part of the mission of the church is to rebuild society and form it into Christendom. And they believe, Reconstructionists believe, that it's the church's mission to build families, churches, and local communities and nations into a great Christian civilization. And so Christians should work to see God's law adopted as the institutional norm of community organizations, local and civil governments, and so on. So that's Reconstructionism. We want to rebuild Christendom. Uh, postmillennialism, uh, postmillennial Reconstructionism says that Christ will return after a golden age of gospel triumph. And so this view says that God promises to transform all nations through the work of the church so that they will have a Christian society with Christian institutions governed by God's law. And after Christendom has been established in a golden age, which God promises, then Christ will return. And I'm, I'm really not aware, just from a sociological standpoint of theonomists, any, any public theonomist or anyone's I've met who don't hold all three of these ideas together. I guess you could theoretically separate them. Um, uh, if you're a theonomist, you could just maybe just hold the theonomy. But practically speaking, they come as a package, as far as I'm aware. That, so That's super helpful and interesting. Before we jump into, I guess, the, the how compatible is this thinking with Baptist I guess, thinking in general. One question I did have is, I think at least from what I've seen, I mean, I'm not well-read in theonomy and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. It seems that some people want to say that theonomy is almost like a logical conclusion of the original Westminster version of federalism or covenant theology. Mm -hmm. So is that true? Because I think that would shape a lot of how Baptists would in end up interacting with mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I really don't think it is true. Um, I don't believe it's a logical conclusion of Westminster federalism, but I do think there are some pressures in the system that could tend that way, and I want to explain what I mean. But first of all, I want to explain why it is not 
a logical conclusion of the Westminster Confession. So I just want to point that out. No Presbyterians who are Orthodox, who are confessional, should think that their system tends in this way in the le- or, or is, affirms theonomy in the least. Uh, first of all, uh, in Westminster C- Confession of Faith, chapter 19 on the law of God, there is a sharp distinction between God's moral law, which is perpetual and universally binding, and God's positive law, which is expressed in the ceremonial and judicial laws of the Old Covenant. So just to define those terms so we know what we're talking about, this is in the Westminster Confession. Moral law is a reflection of God's immutable moral character. It cannot change because God is God does not change. God reveals moral law both in nature and in Scripture. And moral law is summarized in the Reformed traditions, said to be summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so people know God's moral law innately because it's written on their consciences as people made in God's image. And so, for example, everyone knows it's wrong to murder. It doesn't matter what society or covenant you're in at all. Everyone knows that's wrong because they're made in God's image. They know it's wrong to steal. They don't have to be told that. They suppress those things in unrighteousness and justify murder and stealing and so, but they know it in their consciences. So that's moral law. Uh, Positive law uh, is law that God posits or decrees by kingly fiat. Uh, They're really more revelatory and governmental is what they are. And they're tied to the covenants in which they're given. So Uh, People would never know that they should obey a positive law unless it was revealed in a covenant. You just wouldn't know it. For example, Abraham would never have known that he needed to be circumcised unless God commanded him to be circumcised in the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision. Um, So uh, similarly, the nation of Israel would never have known the exact form of its ceremonial or judicial laws unless God revealed it in the old covenant. And so... um, The Westminster Confession of Faith has this basic distinction between moral law, which is natural, uh, and positive or covenantal law, which is commanded in particular covenants. So I just want to read something out of the Westminster Confession. This is Westminster Confession 19.4, and it says the judicial laws are expired. It says to them also, meaning to to the people of Israel, as a body politic, politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of the people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. Now, many people seize upon that term general equity, and they say, well, see, they're not really expired. We still got to keep them in some way. But, But we need to understand what that term meant. It was a technical term, and it had a definite meaning uh, in in historic theology and among the Reformed Orthodox and really even before that. But according to the Reformed Orthodox, general equity refers to the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, written uh, in nature on the hearts of men, and also uh, that we can conclude it by careful reasoning, but all that together. And it refers strictly to moral law which is revealed outside of judicial law. So uh, just to give you one quotation from the past, William Perkins wrote, judicial law, so far as they have in them 
the general or common equity of the law of nature, and that's a key phrase, so far as they have in them the general or common equity of the law of nature are moral and therefore binding in conscience as the moral law. So Perkins is saying that if you can find any aspect of judicial law outside of the judicial law in natural law, then that natural law continues to bind all men as it is found in a particular judicial law. And Calvin and Beza would say uh, the same thing. So we're considering if Westminster federalism leads to uh, theonomy. And I would say no, because a Westminster confession of faith does not assume that the essential core of old covenant judicial laws is perpetually binding. Instead, it teaches that the moral or natural law summarized in the Ten Commandments alone is binding. And the Westminster Confession teaches that if any part of judicial law is binding, you have to prove it outside of judicial law first, either by the law of nature, by the Ten Commandments, uh, uh, so moral law. So, so the first reason I would say that, that Westminster federalism does not logically lead to theonomy is it has a clear division of law. It affirms permanent moral law that's rooted in God's own character uh, and, and revealed in nature. On the other hand, it teaches that there is changeable covenantal positive law, and it lumps judicial law into that, Israel's judicial law into that category of positive law, which has expired. Um, but there's a second reason <clears throat> I would say that theonomy is not a necessary con logical conclusion of Westminster Federalism, and it's because of their chapter on the covenants. <clears throat> um, chapter 8 teaches that there is only one covenant of grace, but the covenant of grace is administered differently under the old covenant and the new covenant. And so under the old covenant, the covenant of grace, according to the Westminster Confession, was administered through types and shadows and ordinances, which are fulfilled and abrogated when Christ comes. But under the new covenant, the covenant of grace is now administered with, quote, more simplicity and less outward glory and that section of the Westminster Confession says it's centered on the preaching of the word and, and administration of the sacraments. So that's the essence of the positive law of the new covenant for Westminster Presbyterians. So I don't think it logically leads there. But as a Baptist, uh, I would still say that there are theological pressures in the system of Westminster federalism that could lead someone to adopt theonomy. So here's where I would show that. The final sentence of Westminster Confession 8.6 says this, There are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Now, as a Baptist, when I look at this, I can't help but think about and remember all the ways that Presbyterians have often argued for paedo-baptism. <laughs> and what do they say? They say that the covenant of grace is the same in substance, but similar in administration. That's really key, that the covenant of grace has the same substance and God administers it similarly throughout uh, all time. And so they argue that the sign of the covenant of grace was given to the children of the covenant in the old covenant. Therefore, since the covenant of grace is similarly administered, 
then the sign of the covenant of grace should also be given to the children of the new in the new covenant. So circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. Therefore, in the new covenant, the children of believers should be baptized because the covenant of grace has the same substance and is administered similarly in both Old and New Testaments. And this is a very standard line of, of debate um, from Presbyterians with Baptists. And I, I really don't see why that kind of theological reasoning couldn't be used to justify theonomy. And this, you know, the argument could go something like this. If the covenant of grace is similarly administered, then we should expect the laws of the Old Testament to continue into the time of the New Testament unless they're expressly repealed. So theonomists could argue that the New Testament would have to explicitly abrogate a judicial law before we have the right to conclude we shouldn't impose that judicial law under the New Testament administration of the covenant of grace. After all, it's all one covenant. Um, so it seems to me that the same arguments used to establish infant baptism could be employed to establish theonomy. Now, that having been said, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith expressly rejects theonomy, and it is not orthodox, and it is not confessional. So that's, that's how helpful. I think of that. So before we we switch gears to talking about Baptists and, and their relationship to theonomy and how it's becoming kind of a growing movement. I want to go back to something you said. You said that that theonomists, you know, they sometimes they'll they'll pitch um the nation of Israel and its judicial system as a as a system of perfect justice and it's a blueprint, you know, that yeah. um that should be repeated um throughout civil civil governments uh today. And so they may say something like, well does God get to determine what a perfectly just society looks like? And then when you say yes, they may say, well, who who are we to think that we can improve on what God did in the nation of Israel and their system of justice? So I wonder Mm -hmm. what would be the way that you think we should, because that has a certain rhetorical force to it, um, just Mm -hmm. when you you first hear it, you know. So what, what would you say is the best way to respond to that? Is there something else going on in the reason Yes. Uh, multiple reasons that God gave Israel's law that, that gets mm-hmm. lost um, in the way that they're presenting it. What's the best way to combat that? Yeah. Um, well, the the it, it has to do with what what is the purpose of Israel's judicial law. And I'm really not coming at this as a Baptist. You can go back to pre-Reformation and Reformation time periods and see the kinds of argument I'm about to make. But they, they would have... Uh, over and against theonomy's uh, assertions that you've repeated there, um, there was a recognition in historical theology that the judicial law was uh, God's administration of a people through a covenant for a particular reason at a particular time. And it was even called in classical theology human law. It wasn't even called God's law. There was a a category for divine law, but that was viewed as the Ten Commandments revealed in Scripture, moral law revealed in Scripture. But human law is law that is about governing a people. And for their particular times and circumstances, and there's plenty of examples of this, you know, the, the, the judicial law of Israel, for example, you know, permits polygamy. It never says it's it's advisable, never encourages it, never sanctions it, it regulates it. Um, and so why would God do this? Well, here's a people he's regulating in that way. There are other things about, you know, the penalty for adultery was imposed, 
upon a woman who a married a woman who committed adultery with a married man or or a married man with a married woman but there was no civil penalty for adultery for a married man who committed adultery with an unmarried woman because it was expected that they would just get married right and so the, these are dis- things that are sh- that you can see are distinct to the culture of the time where god wasn't actually he was accommodating somewhat to the culture not not justifying it as you know morally right nevertheless a civil law wasn't merely reflective of what was morally right it was doing a particular thing in a particular time to a particular culture it also uh, was was revelatory of the gospel in types and shadows and um and of the law you know with the severe penalties you know typological of hell and so um the ultimate though reason for the civil law i would i would suggest the new testament teaches is to preserve the line of promise that god was holding that people together until christ would emerge from them um so the the short answer is the bible itself doesn't recognize the judicial law of israel as quote god's law it recognizes the judicial law of israel as a managerial uh, human law that's perfect god god gave it he revealed it perfectly for its purposes but it isn't it wasn't ever given as a blueprint for all nations so the question now i guess drilling in a little bit on the baptist side I mean, can a Baptist or any Baptist really hold to theonomy? Can they be a theonomist and be a consistent Baptist in any way? And I'm going to assume (laughs) if Westminster doesn't allow for theonomy, then clearly the Second London doesn't, especially given its, I guess, not super different covenant theology, but its clarified covenant theology. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. The Second London Confession really argues against or would uh, would fence out theonomy the same way the Westminster Confession would. In essence, I'll just quote you the Second London, which is phrased a little differently, but says essentially the same thing as the Westminster Confession. And in Second London 19.4, it says, to them also, meaning to the people of Israel, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, and then it says, their general equity only being of moral use. So there you see again, you know, there's a, insofar as there's any moral law found in uh, judicial law, that's perpetual because it's moral, not because it's judicial. And so that was the historic uh, Baptist view. But, but for whether the question whether any Baptist could be a theonomist, we have to define Baptist in terms of historic Baptist identity. You know, a Baptist is not someone who just immerses a professing believer. You know, uh, liberals who deny Christ's divinity would claim to be Baptists and they, and they baptize what they believe are professing believers, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And so Baptist identity is bigger than, you know, immersing a professing believer. Baptist identity has an underlying hermeneutic. Uh, it's uh, historically orthodox, classically evangelical, and it insisted that God's true people are only believers who are in the world but not of it. And so those are the elements of Baptist identity. But the hermeneutic of the historic Baptists, they saw a, a definite distinction between the Old and the New Covenants. And here was basically what they were all saying. Uh, the Old Covenant is typological. 
The new covenant is the reality. The old covenant revealed Christ in types and shadows, but the substance of the promise is found formally, historically concluded in the new covenant. So uh, with that, um, all historic Baptists were united on the point we should not look to the positive laws of the old covenant to determine any laws of the new covenant. That's why Baptists said we shouldn't look to the old covenant sign of circumcision to determine the new covenant sign. The new covenant institutes and defines its own positive covenant laws um, because the old covenant uh, positive laws were typological and temporary and they served their purpose with the coming of Jesus. So, um, so yeah, you know, the, the mainstream historic Baptist position, it had to develop. So not all Baptists agreed on what was the covenant of grace. Originally, there were some who had a very Presbyterian perspective. Uh, John Spilsbury was one of those, even though he did see much sharper distinction between old and new covenant administrations than the Presbyterians. But what happened ultimately among Baptists, and I, I think uh, Sam Renahan's book, From Shadow to Substance, proves this. Um, I think categorically, it's a great book I recommend getting. And if you want to see the development of that doctrine of the covenant of grace among Baptists, but what they said was this, the old covenant did not have a saving substance. It was a temporal and typological covenant, which existed to proclaim the law and the gospel through types and to preserve the line of promise until Christ came. Only the covenant of grace has a saving substance which is not the same as the old covenant, they would say. And the covenant of grace was first given in Genesis 3.15. It was further revealed throughout the Bible until it was historically concluded in the new covenant, which is the fullest expression of the covenant of grace to date. That was that became the dominant uh, Baptist view. So to sum up, a Baptist identity was historically rooted in a certain hermeneutic. They believe that the the Old Covenant and the New Covenant were related as type and anti-type. And the Old Covenant was temporary and shadowy, and it, and it was fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, we should look to the New Covenant to institute New Covenant positive, positive law. We shouldn't resurrect the Old Covenant shadow. That's what they would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, I'm just thinking, like, I know you're not a sociologist, and so you can't probably answer this question totally. <laughs> but, what w- I mean, what's... What is it that's drawing Baptists to theonomy then? Is it, it, it almost seems it's not theonomy, but you mentioned Reconstructionism. Is that the more mm-hmm. uh, popular draw, which kind of like leads you through the back door to theonomy? I think theonomists would probably drop theonomy before they drop the Reconstructionism. So they would, they would drop out the Old Covenant judicial law and say, but we still need to rebuild society with God's moral law, at least, and still be uh, Reconstructionist. But, you know, it's... I think it's just a function of, you know, peop- our uh, Christians in our culture feel like they're losing something that they had. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this sense that we need an answer, a Christian answer to the problems that are going on in society. And theonomy is kind of an already made simple package deal that you can just lay hold of. And this is yeah. my answer, you know, um, so I think that's. I was what kind it of is, thinking about this earlier. Yeah, I, I was. It, it seems like there's just a search for certainty in a in a in a culture that seems to be right before our very eyes, just totally deteriorating in so many different exactly. ways. And it seems 
kind of chaotic and this is just somewhere that we can we can grab hold of this and it's very black and white it's it's very cut and dry i mean this is this is what god's law says this is what a, a just society should look like and it removes no of course i think it's as you've already said i think there are mistakes being made along the way but just maybe um psychologically it it offers this certainty that that we no longer have um that's in the right. way that things are looking right now yeah, I can just point to chapter and verse. This is what the Bible says, and I'm just going to yep. quote it and then impose it directly on society, you know, without a without a hermeneutic that in the background. It's it's re- yep. I think it's an overly simplistic. Here's the Bible. America should believe and obey the Bible. Let's make that happen, sort of thing. <laughs> so, so what? So if if we're going to reject theonomy, what what would you say is is what Baptists? I, I guess. It wouldn't be proper to say replace it with because Baptists have never historically been theonomists. But what what should Baptists be putting forward as um, our view of uh, is it to kingdom theology or what 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 route should we be going on that? Yeah. Um, well, the let, let me address both of those, and you can jump in if you want to because I have a lot of thoughts about okay. this. But but on the two kingdoms question. Should, should Baptists be two kingdoms? Are there alternatives to that? And I, I'll submit, and I'm going to make a case, so you just be patient with the case as I make it, but I think Baptists have to form, affirm some form of two-kingdom theology, and here's why. We've always believed that God's kingdom is administered through covenant, and so when we speak of God's covenant, we must understand he rules his kingdom through uh, those covenants. And Baptists have always held that the covenant of grace is made up of true believers only. Right? So the covenant of grace, at least that's the, the reigning position. You might add some outliers here, but the, the, the main line position was, uh, among Baptists was the covenant of grace is only believers. And what that means is that God's redemptive kingdom does not include the whole world, but only believers. Baptists insist that God is not redeeming everything or everyone. Reconstructionists often speak of God redeeming society, redeeming culture, redeeming institutions, but Baptists have historically believed that God is only redeeming those who personally believe in Jesus. And he only redeems the elect. Only believers will inherit uh, the age to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Only believers are in God's redemptive kingdom because only believers are in the covenant of grace. That's what Baptists have believed. And so, uh, and the gospel is a power of that redemption. And that leads to a question, which is, doesn't God rule over the rest of the world? Is he only ruling over his people through his redemptive kingdom, through the covenant of grace? And of course he does rule over the rest of the world. God is a sovereign over the whole world. Christ is indeed ruling the world. That's why consistent Baptists have to affirm some form of another kingdom. So there's a a kingdom that he, a saving kingdom for his his people who believe, but then there's a um, another kingdom, and through which God rules the rest of the world. And, you, and this is a creational kingdom. Um, you could call it a, a kingdom of preservation. Uh, however you would formulate this, God is ruling the whole world to preserve it 
until the full number of his people are saved. And you could call this uh, God's kingdom of natural or moral law. It could be called God's kingdom of common grace. The point is it's a kingdom in which God rules both believers and unbelievers. And the key thing here is the purpose of the two kingdoms is very different. Uh, the redemptive kingdom saves. It's a saving kingdom. Uh, the And it's administered through the, the, the covenant of grace. The common kingdom is not, or the shared kingdom is not a saving kingdom. God doesn't intend to save unbelievers. That's not the point. Instead, the point of the common kingdom is to stabilize the world, to impose some semblance of good order, to uh, to preserve the creation for the redemption of his people, and also to take away every excuse of unbelievers. So there's perhaps ways in which that's been formulated differently, you know, and Baptists maybe have conceived of it differently, but uh, no Baptist would say that um, that the kingdom of God through the covenant includes their children and their children's children so that you have, you know, God uh, saving believers and their children and the cities and the, and the country and the nations and that uh, the, the redemptive covenant becomes national or universal or something. No, the redemptive covenant is only for God, for God's people who believe and who go to heaven. So that is distinctively Baptist. But then, then you would ask, you're asking the question, what, contributions can Baptists make to public theology? So how, how is that common kingdom ruled? Well, we would say natural law, uh, moral law applies everywhere. That's universal. It's written in the hearts of men. And historic reform theology would say the same thing. So all Ten Commandments, um, natural law, you know, uh, it's written on our hearts as images of God. All of society is accountable to that and should submit to it. But Baptists um, have their main contribution in the way they discuss the division of responsibility between the church and the civil government. Um, so Baptists believed that the civil government should punish outward violations of, this, uh, of uh, the second table of the moral law, of civil law, but the government has no authority to enforce or punish, enforce orthodoxy or punish heresy. So another way of putting this is that Baptists believe that the state is authorized to use force, use the sword to punish those who harm others physically, uh, outwardly, who, who cause some bodily, physical, uh, temporal harm to them. But the state has no authority to, to punish those who violate the first table um, of the Ten Commandments or to coerce orthodoxy or worship or anything like that. But Baptists also believed that the church is responsible to preach the law and the gospel to every creature. So we aren't sectarian in that we just huddle up and we're just going to have our own faith all by ourselves. No, Baptists believed in preaching the whole counsel of God far and wide. Baptists also believe that certainly rulers in the government and in all of society ought to trust in Jesus. <laughs> you know, that civil authorities ought to exercise their power within the boundaries of moral law that, um, and that they should preach and defend the whole counsel of God. But Baptists believe that the church does not have the right to force anyone against their wills uh, to worship um, or to embrace uh, orthodox, orthodoxy. 
Uh, rather, the church relies on the word of, and the spirit to advance his cause, uh, and the state doesn't have that authority. So let me let me read a few quotations if, if you if you would let me. But back in 2014, Ronald Ronald Baines had a great article in the journal for the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies, where he shows what historic Baptists believed about the separation of the two kingdoms, and and he explains that a key New Testament passage that defined uh, the Baptist understanding of the separation of church and state was John 18:36, where it says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And so considering this, Daniel Merrill, an early particular Baptist, wrote this, uh, the kingdom which the God of heaven set up has never needed, so has never debased herself by soliciting the secular arm to enforce the mandates of the church. Of the civil authority, she asks no more than to have it stand out of her sunshine, that Caesar, in agreement with the ordinance of heaven, uh, would look well to the management of Caesar's kingdom and leave it uh, with the Lord to manage his so that's one historic Baptist, but the Shaftesbury Baptist Association, which is in Vermont, uh, said this, that the whole association affirmed the statement, the kingdom of heaven is not defended by carnal weapons and forms no alliance with the kingdoms and states of this world, but is distinct from them. Um, the Philadelphia Baptist Association wrote, Christ's kingdom needs no support from union with the governments of this world that the more distinctly the line is drawn between them, the better. Um, Isaac Bacchus object, uh, anticipated some objections to this position. Uh, he said it was not that the unbelief or false worship of the citizenry was acceptable to God or the Baptists. Rather, God did not ordain the civil government as the means for addressing the unbelief of those outside the church. And here's what he wrote. Uh, the question between us, that is between Baptists and Paedo-Baptists, is not whether it be the duty of citizens to trust Christ and worship him rightly, but it is whether that duty ought to be enforced by the sword or only by instruction, persuasion, and good example. Uh, Bacchus also wrote, um, the church is armed with light and truth to pull down the strongholds of iniquity and to gain the gain souls to Christ and into his church to be governed by his rules therein and to uh, and again to exclude such from their communion who will not be so governed while the state is armed with the sword to guard the peace and the civil rights of all persons and societies and to punish those who violate the same and where these two kinds of governments uh, where these two kinds of government and the weapons which belong to them are well distinguished and improved according to the true nature and end of their institution, the effects are happy and they do not at all interfere with each other. But where they have been confounded together, no tongue or pen can fully describe the mischiefs that have ensued, of which the Holy Ghost gave early and plain warnings. And that's representative of historic Baptist thinking on public theology. One question. I guess I have related just to theonomy in general. I know, I think all three of us would say theonomy is no, a no-go. But there is a clear distinction, I think, between levels of doctrine that we would reject on how important they are. So mm -hmm. where would you place this? Is this something that is would be a threat to churches? Um, is it a bad thing if a church member believes this? Or is it a worse mm -hmm. thing if an elder believes this? I mean, how... 
important is it that we reject theonomy, especially for Baptists? Well, I, I do believe that theonomy is a th- threat to churches and not just Baptist churches, but all of them. But I would say that certainly a Christian can be a theonomist. And I think there that there's inconsistencies with the gospel if you're a theonomist. Um, and yet, um, thank the Lord that he saves inconsistent people. But I do think theonomy is a, is a, is a threat. Uh, and that's partly be, for, it's for two reasons. Uh, one is that theonomy tends to resurrect the entire system of the old covenant and the old covenant. So if you're going, if you're trying to go back to old covenant law and see what we're as a nation to do based on old covenant law, you would also be trying to import the promises as well. And uh, historic Baptists have always said that there was an echo of the original law covenant in the old covenant. And so there's a do this and live principle. And so if a Christian believes I have to work and the church should work to obey God's law in order to establish uh, a nation, a glorious nation, a nation of, of a golden age, um, that, is, that is not the gospel. That is a work for life paradigm. And it, is, it, and it is different from what we're taught in the New Testament as a means by which God saves us, which is he saves us and he gives us paradise as a free gift. <laughs> Our works flow out of gratitude and love for the one uh, who has bought us. And so there's a theological concern there uh, that if you, if you adopt theonomy, you probably have a tendency to resurrect the whole old covenant system, uh, which tends to bring in the law as a covenant as a way to uh, enjoy life and paradise with God um, in, in your nation. But th- there's another problem with it as well, which is that uh, theonomy tends to redefine the mission of the church. So theonomic reconstructionists teach that the mission of the church is to preach the gospel for the conversion of souls like we would, but they also believe the church's mission is partly to to construct Christendom for the redemption of all of society. And what this usually means is that pastors and all Christians should focus on preaching against the, uh, the cultural sins of our society, summon people to obey God's law, so that God will bless and redeem our nation. Uh, and, and so theonomists will deny that the mission of the church is merely the preaching of the law and the gospel for the conversion of souls and the building and growing of Christian churches. And, and they would deny that the concrete expression of the Christian ethic should be within the churches. So, um, one way to think of this is they, they, they want to see the concrete of, expression of, of Christian ethics, of a Christian society in the nation, as opposed to within the church. And that that's the mission of the church, is to bring a concrete expression of Christianity uh, to the nation. Um, but I would agree with what I think historic Baptists would say about this, that that's, that's wrong, that the, that the mission of the church is to preach the law and the gospel for the conversion of, of the elect, or to, to bring believers to redemption and that God promises them life and paradise in the age to come, not by works, not by the works of the church uh, in, in this age. So um, 
Uh, I want to be clear. I'm not denying that a theonomic reconstructionist would say that we're saved by grace through faith. They will say that. They'll say we're individually, that's the gospel of justification. They'll say we're saved through the gospel, we're saved by grace. They will affirm that. But they'll also affirm, maybe they would call it the gospel of the kingdom, that we should, by grace through faith, work to build the new Jerusalem, paradise, heaven on earth. And God works with us, we work with God to realize that goal. And so I do think that that's a danger for any church. Mm. Yeah. Since this is such a um, a relevant topic uh, to our current moment, um, you've already mentioned a number of different uh, resources, Renahan's book and um, the quotes from Bacchus and then the Ronald Baines article. But are there any other resources that you would recommend for someone, maybe the person who doesn't know anything about other than what they've heard here today, anything about theonomy or reconstructionism or anything, or maybe some more advanced uh, books or articles that the listeners might find relevant to this discussion. Um, We'd love to hear your recommendations. Yeah. Well, there probably needs to be more uh, contemporary things written on theonomy today. There's, there's some older resources on theonomy, there was one, and I'm, I'm trying to remember all the titles, but there was one put out by Westminster Theological Seminary. It has a term, theonomy, in it, um, but it's a collection of essays by scholars from, you know, several decades ago. But it, it's worth getting and looking at and, and reading that book. Um, for a positive treatment, I would recommend uh, Sam, of the covenants and of the kingdoms, I'd recommend Sam Renahan's book, um, uh, The Mystery of Christ on the covenants. And that doesn't deal directly with theonomy, but it instead kind of sets you on the right path uh, theologically. I think that's you know also historically Baptist that would avoid theonomy. Um, and uh, as far as any other resources against theonomy that are contemporary, um, Brandon Adams has some good stuff on his website as well that I, I would recommend. He has a if you if you go to his resources page, it's not just what he writes, but he has a whole list of resources there that will tap you into all kinds of other things. So I recommend those those items. Now, is there one or two works you would say are actually like really the best works for theonomy for those who want to research this more and understand the the best arguments for it so they can work through them? Yeah, I mean, uh all of anything by Greg Bonson is probably the very best. So um, he he wrote, um, you know, the, the book by by the standard, or and or by what standard? I can't remember which one it is, but that's an excellent. That's a that's a resource. You can you can find that. But um, he he has he has done a good job. I think of um, in the classical sense of the term theonomy, uh, correcting some of the other excesses or. Uh, questions or answering some of the questions that were raised against earlier iterations of theonomy. Bonson did the best, best job of that, I believe. So, you know, funny Bonson story my mentor in college, he always used to say that he thought if Greg Bonson would have uh, lived longer, if the Lord would have allowed him to, he would have become a Baptist eventually given his theological <laughs> really? positions and direction. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. <laughs> How fascinating. So uh, I don't know if that's true at all, but, uh, I'm sure there's some Greg Bonson lover who's listening to this who'd say absolutely not, but you know, just fun fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. Brandon, do you have any other questions? 
No, I'm good. Cool. Well, uh, Tom, before we let you go, uh, for those who want to follow you, your work more, um, I know uh, you, your primary vocation is pastoring, but I think you also do some popular, uh, you get write articles and different things like that uh, from time to time. Is there a, a place or location they should follow you if they want to keep up with what you're writing on? Yeah, I mean, you can you can look at my, check out my blog, uh, pastortomhicks.com. Um, I'm also a co-host for the Modern Merriman podcast, which I would recommend. And and but but truly, brothers, I'm a pastor, and you know that my main work goes into shepherding God's people. And so, you know, any sermons on my church website is is what receives my greatest labor. So that's great. That's good stuff. So, well, thanks. I mean, a ton for talking with us. I think this was really uh, helpful, really enlightening. Um, I think anytime we can get a pastor on here to walk through topics like this, it, it's really a sweet spot for us. So I really appreciate you, you taking the time. And I know a lot of our listeners will definitely enjoy this. So thank you, number one. And for those who've been listening, uh, we encourage you to check out uh, Tom's work, check out his stuff, uh, be edified by it because he's, he's doing it in a way that is both uh, clear, kind and rigorous. And I think just charitable, you know, there, there's too few of us uh, who affirm the Second London Confession in, in kind of public life spheres that I think have the right disposition. And I think Tom is one of those you want to model and emulate and follow. So I commend that. And for those um, who are just listening to listen, I mean, we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.